Good afternoon. My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Constitutional Studies Program and Tokmo Program. It's my pleasure to introduce John Meyer, the executive director of the Knapp Institute, and he'll introduce our speaker. John. Yes, I want to thank Phil, first off, for hosting us. Um, we've been exploring great churches throughout Chicago and um, looking at art, architecture, and uh, evangelization through truth, beauty, and goodness. So, you know, Duncan, well, a lot of us are familiar with your work, and just uh, the, the probably the best example of uh, arc, some of the best examples of architecture we could look at. So I just want to introduce Duncan. I'll read a brief bio, um, and then I'll let him uh, get the get to work on the talk. So Duncan Strike is a practicing arch architect, author, and professor of architecture at the University of Notre Dame. His award-winning works include Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity Chapel in California. Uh, many of you recognize as Thomas Aquinas College's chapel. Um, the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Wisconsin and uh, St. Joseph Cathedral in South Dakota. He's a frequent lecturer on sacred architecture in, classic, in the classical tradition and has recently authored the book um, The Church Building as a Sacred Place, Beauty, Transcendence, and the Eternal. Mr. Stroik is an inaugural member of the Society for Catholic Liturgy and founding editor of the Sacred Architecture Journal. He is a graduate of the University of Virginia and the Yale University School of Architecture. So, Duncan. Great to be here. Uh, thank you all for coming to, uh, some of you coming to the Midwest. Who's not from the Midwest? Okay, good. Thank you for visiting us um, and visiting church architecture. And you went to some big city to see our, uh, churches. What was it? Was that big city? Did you see anything nice? Uh, I want to thank John Meyer, uh, Tim Bush, uh, Knapp Institute, Philip Munoz, um, Sarah Joyce, for, and everybody else who's made this happen. Um, I'm sorry we're starting late, and because we're starting late, I'm going to cut my lecture by about a half an hour so you can get out to do the ne next important thing. <laughs> Tailgating? Is that really important? Um, so, I'm really happy that the Tocqueville Center and the Knapp Institute invited me because I seldom get to lecture at Notre Dame. Oh, sorry. What I meant is I don't usually get to lecture on religious holidays like today. <laughs> I also want to thank Liz Lev, who's with us today and is at Notre Dame this semester, and, for, uh, and Dennis McNamara for giving you two wonderful talks. Really, I should have been the warm-up act for them. But at any rate, uh, I'm here, and they were kind to see you in Chicago. So I thought that since I was speaking at the uh, Tocqueville Center, de Tocqueville Center, Duncan, come on, French, I thought I would begin by reading a quote by the great French political theorist on sacred architecture in America. Well, sort of, you know the quote. When the past no longer illuminates the future, the spirit walks in darkness. When the past no longer illuminates the future, the spirit walks in darkness. I think we've been coming out of the darkness in art and architecture for the last 30 years. And why? Because of the visionary work of priests, bishops, lay people, uh, you all, and as well as artists and architects who have allowed the past to illuminate the future. So thanks for being part of this event and this trip. And uh, I'm honored to play a very small part of it and to get you all excited about beating Michigan. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, did you go here? Yet? You did? No? Yeah? No? Yep. It's some little chapel. Okay. Um, 
Someone once asked me if I could boil down the history of sacred architecture into universal principles. The principles would need to be ones that the builders of the early Christian basilica, the Gothic cathedrals, and the Baroque chapels could accede to. Most of these principles, however, did not need to be articulated in previous ages. Why? Because they were understood. But today we need to re-articulate them so we do not get sidetracked by some of the demands of modern society. If these principles are truly universal, then they apply to sacred architecture of all time, of all places and styles. And so I would suggest that these principles, if they're true and if they're universal and that they really do apply across the ages, that if you find a church that's missing one or two or three of these, then there's a problem. And while these principles, I believe, are fundamental to a true revival of sacred architecture, they're not a formula for success. If you want success, I'm sorry to tell you, you need a lot of money and you need to hire a talented architect. Before beginning to delve into these five, I want to state for the record that, of course, there are a number of obvious themes. When you think of sacred architecture, what do you think of? What have you heard about this week, or what are you thinking about? Come on, come on. Tradition. Beauty. Inspiration. Churches. Liturgy. What? Notre Dame, is that a French place? Um, Mystery, light. These are, what you've just mentioned are perhaps even more important than the five principles I will explore with you, but many of them are actually less quantifiable. So I'm gonna focus on the quantitative principles, which I believe are things that can be taught, and I'm a teacher, that's what I do for a living, and even measured. The first is verticality. Verticality has been important to churches to foster a sense of awe and to point our eyes heavenward. In recent decades, many architects and liturgists have emphasized the importance of the imminent over the transcendent. And therefore, we've created buildings which are not inspiring, but are inwardly focused. Our budgets, have it reinforced this trend. While horizontality can be fine for work, for functional buildings, verticality ennobles people. What are the qualities which make a church vertical? And this is where I'm gonna push you with a little bit of proportion, a little bit of mathematics. Historically, churches varied from a one-to-one -one proportion. That is the width to the height of the nave as you see in early Christian basilicas or even Franciscan chapels. Look at this little humble chapel. Do you know this one on the right? Humble little chapel that St. Francis rebuilt where Christ spoke to him from the cross. It's a very humble building and yet the proportions are basically square. There's still a little bit of verticality to it. And then on the left, a great Gothic cathedral of Amiens, much more taller, one to three proportions, three times the width. So our churches have historically varied, but that sense of uplift, like even this room that we're in right now, that sense of uplift. This is not a horizontal room, this is a vertical room. 
In fact, this room would be good for Gregorian chant. It's great for videos. No kidding. Um, in order to be vertical, a church should be at least as tall as it is wide. Two of the tallest churches in the world are instructive. Compare these two. Which seems more vertical? Which seems more vertical, more transcendent? Yeah, Beauvais. Beauvais is the tallest Gothic cathedral in the world. It's technically the tallest nave in the world, 157 feet tall. St. Peter's is much smaller, 150 feet. It's about the same size. But St. Peter's also has verticality, right? Transcendence. But it's, it has a much more generous wide nave. So uh, same height, different sense of verticality. That's okay. We have tried to, in our work, start with the exterior and have a sense of verticality. You notice something in this image that's very vertical. Costs a lot of money, you don't really need it, except it has bells in it. What is it called? And in this case, Tom Dillon, the president, kept wanting the tower to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so that people could see it farther and farther and farther and farther away. There are other things that emphasize verticality about the facade, the columns, the pilasters, the pediment. There's a statue of somebody on the pediment. We didn't put her on the dome. We put her on the pediment because we didn't think we could quite match some other building. This is one of the simplest, smallest, most economical churches I've done. And it too, we had to find a way to do uh, transcendence and verticality. And what we did is we made up for the physical height, which was limited to the width, and used other means, like the large pilasters, like the vaulted ceiling and the ribs, like the windows. So there are other things that can help you get a sense of verticality and what verticality is meant to imp uh, imply transcendence. This is a 19th century parish church in Connecticut. And there, we couldn't change the architecture, which was fine, but we could make it more transcendent, more vertical by the use of artwork. So color and artwork can sometimes be an element to help us look on the heavens, look at the sky, um, gaze upward, focus on God. And then one of my favorite things are domes, because the dome is symbolic of what? What dome is the dome symbolic of? Dome of heaven. And so this was an interesting one. Uh, and, and of course, on the outside, the dome of heaven, the inside, the dome of heaven. And then there are other elements in the church, especially the focus, the sanctuary, uh, where I'm a great believer in a high altar or a, a baldacchino or something that even as you focus in the church, that something takes your eye upward. Um, so the baldacchino itself can help give that sense. Number two is directionality. Directionality implies journey and procession. We think of the journey of the Israelites to the promised land, later Christ's journey to Jerusalem, the holy city, and then finally his via crucis, his journey up to Golgotha. We are all on a spiritual journey, like the Israelites. We're all on a spiritual journey a pilgrimage to the promised land. And the church building is one part of that journey. But the interesting thing is, historically, we've used the church building to express the whole journey. 
in that one building for us, for us pilgrims. So being passionate about faith, how do you articulate the journey in art and architecture? And the first way is to create a building with directionality and with a focus that brings you along on the journey. When you think of processions, what, do you, what comes to mind in a church? Processions. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, great. Stations of the Cross, excellent, in a circle. What else? Corpus Christi, great processions. Come back in style in the last decades. Um, very moving. Pope John Paul II promoted that. Um, all of these types of processions are best served by long, elegant central aisles and even side aisles. As Bill McGurn has written, if you want to know what a good church is, just ask the brides. They know what a procession is. They know what a good church is for a procession. But every liturgy that we go to is in some way processional, even if it's in a little chapel. And even your ch visits to a church, there's a sense of procession or should be. We can reinforce the sense of directionality, not by having a big long box, but by articulating the journey with episodes. A clearly marked front door, a narthex, coming into the nave, going to the transept, then to the sanctuary, to the apse. And as you mentioned with the Stations of the Cross, the other processions we think about are in pilgrimage churches where people come in on football games, walk around the church, and then come back out. That's a pilgrimage church, right? They go to the back to see the relics and then to come back. So the, the idea of procession and pilgrimage and directionality. If transcendence is emphasized by vertical elements, then directionality will be emphasized by horizontal elements. The floor, the ceiling, the cornice, which helps point you in a direction towards the altar and to the image, the icon, as well as then back out into the world. Directionality is also emphasized by repetition of vertical elements. So even though they're vertical, they help make pace you as you go in your procession. If you don't have any of that, it's just a big box, there's much less sense of procession, even though there may be the same depth. Starting with the outside, how can we do this? Well, one thing that we've experimented with is this idea of the church as a porticelli, a gate of heaven. And so the idea of the triumphal arch that you pass through into a narthex, into a porch. And then a building that actually is a pilgrimage church that you are, are meant to drive to, get out of your car and walk up, walk up to the church. Ultimately, the procession needs a raison d'etre, or it needs a emphasis, it needs a focus. And the high altar, the tabernacle, the image, or it could even be a side altar, becomes the focus of the procession. Third is geometry. And the purpose of geometry is to create order. One of the ways architects down through the centuries have made the rational order of God's creation known has been through geometry. Geometry is rational based on measure and number. The goal of geometric order is to create a whole body, 
a church that is a body, which is proportional, harmonious, and beautiful, just like the body of Christ, just like the bride of Christ. This is the plan of the Basilica of Notre Dame. You can see this especially in plans of churches, which are made up of geometric parts. Within the overall proportion of a church, geometry is employed by the use of squares and rectangles, which determine the forms and proportions of the exterior and interior. Often similar proportions are reused in both large and small shapes, while other shapes such as circles, octagons, or ovals are employed to give punctuation, which you see at the dome of the crossing or the rose window in a transept. This is all Wisconsin. This is a church that we just dedicated a, a month, uh, sorry, two weeks ago. Um, there's a Jesuit who's a bishop and he's on the West Coast. Do you know his name? He dedicated this church. Um, the Holy Church of the Holy Cross in Tampa. At Tampa, uh, we were interested, or the client was very interested in the geometry of centralized churches, the circle, the octagon, the, the, the um, Greek cross, the oval, and so, which can be considered more of a radial geometry and based on segments of a circle. These geometries can get fairly complex, which is kind of fun for an architect. At Tampa, we had a rectangular building that you can see in the plan, very simple exterior, and we inserted an octagon in the rectangle. Well, what's left over? See those little triangles where the octagon meets the uh, rectangle? Those little, those little triangles became the place for the four chapels, Holy Cross, Death, Passion, four Jesuit martyrs. Following the principle of directionality, the geometry will usually be employed axially along a straight line. If the elements are large, like the arcades on the left, there is preference for an odd number of openings in order to create a center. That is, this is the side aisle of the shrine in Wisconsin, and there's three side chapels. So there's even a center there. And this has a very clear center down the main aisle that the brides like, just for the brides. And then at Thomas Aquinas College, the president had this crazy idea about having columns and arches. And not only that, but he wanted seven of them. Why seven? Yeah, seven sacraments. And being a good philosopher who went to some school in the Midwest in northern Indiana, which has a good football team, he thought he was very much a fan of number and the symbolism of number at his chapel uh, in California. Geometry is also seen in the facade or the elevation. Some architects believe that there's something more magical about irregular geometries, the golden rectangle that you've heard a lot about, or the square root of two. I confess to being an agnostic on that issue. <clears throat> and this is the great uh, Cathedral of Spire in Germany. 
where you see the side bays, the two big arches that are divided up by smaller arches, which are divided up by arch windows and lower arches, and colonnettes and windows above. And that repeated elevation as you move down the nave becomes, um, becomes expressed or becomes trumped by the triumphal arch here, the giant arch, which is the focus of the sanctuary, the, the, tr the uh, transition into the sanctuary. So this geometry can help us uh, express the other things that we're trying to explain, but order, geometry, um, punctuation. Number four is an architectural word, tectonics. Does anybody know what that is? Easiest thing for me to say is architecture. Tectonics is part of architecture. Tectonics is the principle that architectural expression is in part a development from construction, from construction. And it is the elaboration of construction that we get the poetics of architecture. Thus, we see it Stonehenge, the pier, and lintel at a very basic level. If we articulate the sense of bearing weight that the column holds, it will result in a capital, in an Iona capital, in a Dora capital, in a Corinthian capital. Something will happen when the weight comes down on this column. We'll express that. And then if we want to express that weight coming all the way down to the ground, we'll have a foot or a base or moldings that will transition the column down to the floor. It's not required, it's not needed, it's not structural, it's construction, it's expressing construction. It's the poetics of structure. And this is what architecture's been doing for thousands of years until the 20th century. Tectonics encompasses the ideas of materiality, structure, and what they exist to produce, durability. So wrapped up in this emphasis on bearing weight logically is also that we do want the building, want it to look like it's gonna stand for a thousand years and it, we want it to stand for a thousand years, both, durability. This is especially true in our religious structures because they should last for 10 or 20 years, don't you think? Sorry, 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 hundreds of years. On the facade, the major elements we have are roof, walls and openings. In order to express their construction and their durability, we will articulate the roof gable, the openings with moldings, and the wall with elements which support the wall and reinforce transcendence and directionality. We do this through the use of buttresses, columns, pilasters, arches and tablatures, etc. And so I, why do I show you these two different buildings? Great Gothic Cathedral, great Renaissance church, because these ideas are universal. They apply across time. They apply to the great Gothic churches and to the great Renaissance churches and to our churches today. So here I'll try to explain it more clearly. I hope you can see this. This is a um, famous church in a town where all the streets are paved with water. Il Redentore, the Redeemer. An easy way to think of this is in the use of vertical and horizontal thrusts that carry from the roof down to the ground. Because architecture is in major part the reception of these thrusts, both structurally and visually, much of the logic of classical architecture is derived from tectonics.
So, the Redeemer's on top. The weight of the dome comes down and sits on a little cornice. That weight comes down and is brought down to the dome, which has its own little cornice. We see these vertical things. We talked about them before. Some people like them because of the bells, I guess. Then you have the drum of the dome sitting on the building, and then the roof, which comes down onto this cornice. Series of gables, series of pediments, and then the, the, the diagonal of the pediment comes down, sits on weight. There's our beam sitting on the four columns, and we have horizontal members on smaller columns, bringing it all the way down to the ground. So this idea of tectonics is the logic of construction, the poetics of construction that follows through the whole exterior of the building, as well as the interior of the building. And here you see the, the sense of the vaulted ceiling coming down, resting on the beam, which carries around the whole building. That's sitting on columns, which sit on the ground. There's a series of arches in between the columns. They bring the weight down onto entablatures and columns. And most importantly, in the apse, you see the dome sitting on the pendentives and on arches, which are supported by columns. The dome, the four arches of the pendentives, bringing that all down onto these, the one place in this church where you have freestanding columns. So do you get that? If I quiz you on that next week, you'll get it. Tectonics. It's the logic of construction expressed. So we've tried to do this again on some of our simple churches and our fancy churches. This is the simple, one of the simplest ones. And even the sides, there's not a whole lot there, but you see roof, you see entablature, you see buttresses, you see this upward moving element with the pyramid roof, which has bells in it. And the facade is more articulate, that same idea. The interior also, the vaulted ceiling coming down onto pilasters and so on. Um, Thomas Aquinas College is a more sophisticated version of that and you understand the statue sitting on the pediment, sitting on the beam, sitting on the pilasters, sitting on the pedestal, sitting on the beam, which comes forward for the ionic columns, which inframe the arch of the entrance, as well as the interior with the ribs of the ceiling that come down on the entablature and sit on top of the arch, which sits down on top of the entablature, which sits down on the column. Now, one of the things that happens is as you get into tectonics, it allows you to express different things and give different hierarchies, like we were talking about before, the dome, the, the narthex, the nave, the dome. And here, we were able to emphasize the dome with the use of what we call, um, let's see, there's, there's, in South Bend, we have this baseball team, but it's not the big guys, so we call it a what? Minor league team. And the guys are all hoping to spend a couple of years there, hit a lot of home runs, and go to the major leagues. So in architecture, we have minor leagues and major leagues of, 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 of elements. And so you have the minor leagues here, 24 Corinthian columns. And then at the crossing and in the apse, you have the major leagues of the composite columns, pilasters, which are taller, bigger, and better, and more grand. Does that make sense? The major minor leagues of architecture? for the Architectural World Series. And then um, in Wisconsin, a different way to do this. So you can do this in different ways. Uh, in, in Wisconsin, the exterior is fairly simple. Uh, stone building, 
but even the stone apses and transepts are bringing the weight down onto cornices that bring it, the weight down onto walls, which bring it down to the ground. And on the inside, fairly sophisticated, but the scale is much grander than in California. The scale is much bigger and simpler, not seven arches, but three arches, and so on. Okay, number five, iconography. Imaging the invisible reality, iconography. If one of the purposes of church architecture is to make the faith known in three dimensions, then perhaps its most important principle and the one most appreciated by the laity is its focus on iconography. Did Liz Lev talk about this at all? I hope so, I'm sure she did. Um, the average person may be more moved by stained glass, by statues, by high altarpieces, crucifix symbols, and inscriptions than by these other things. Why? These elements communicate to us in a more conscious way than the other four points, verticality, directionality, geometry, and tectonics, which we experience more viscerally. Inscriptions, whether in English or Latin, can be read, and in the context of a church building, may have a more profound meaning. Images of the created world or of the cities of God and man speak to our reality. But the highest image is of holy men and women that are there for our devotion and are models for our lives which we can relate to. Which brings us to the mystery of the incarnation in which God became man and dwelt among us, sharing in our humanity. In this way, we can share in his humanity while hoping to share in his divinity. And at the, at the uh, shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Wisconsin, part of the goal of the building is to tell the story of Mary's appearances to Indians in the New World and the things, the miracles that happened. And so when you walk into this church on the left into the narthex, the whole narthex tells the story in a radial fashion of her appearances and what happened. As you go into the church, there are other elements, inscriptions, stained glass windows of the life of the Virgin that go in a circle, and other elements to tell the story. At a new Carmelite monastery in chapel in uh, Minnesota, we have the saints marching, the Carmelite saints in this case, the only ones that matter, Carmelite saints marching towards um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel and the Holy Altar. This is our first work, which was just a private chapel in a home. Why would you do that, a chapel in the home? This family were building a new house, hired a famous architect, and they had a lot of nice rooms in it, but they thought, well, what's the most important room? Oh, the TV room. The, uh, sorry, the, the, um, the movie room, uh, the movie theater, the indoor pool. I thought, we want to have a chapel. So they built a chapel to the Holy Family, and it was a great project in a house. We got to work on it. And there we did what I consider the American formula. Those of you who are my students, what's the American formula of iconography? In the middle you put? What? Crucifix above the tabernacle, okay? In the middle, crucifix above tabernacle, off to the left, off the left, you have the 
Blessed Virgin. On the right, you have the St. Joseph. Okay, that's the American formula. Wait a minute, I thought that was the Catholic formula. No, no, that's the American formula. I've done it many times, it's totally valid. You won't get an F in my class if you do that. But it is a formula and it's very American. Probably Irish, German. <clears throat> if we travel, as we do today, and visit other great churches, can you name a great church in Europe that follows the American formula? This is a game to play. If any of you can give me five famous churches in Europe that follow the American formula, I will give you an A on the exam, okay? So I just show you a couple in Ravenna and this building in Rome, I forget the name of it. They don't follow the American formula. Tabernacle, crucifix, Our Lady, Our Lady, and St. Joseph. They do not do that. Why not? Because that's not our tradition. Our tradition does not require you to follow that, that American formula. I see it as a fairly narrow and formulaic understanding of iconography. It's not wrong, it's not bad. The other thing that we like to do is what I call iconographical smorgasbord. We do the formula, of course, but then on the sides, in the windows, in the back, in the shrines, we pick and choose some other saints to stick in there. And maybe we put some pious thing here, or an image up there. Again, nothing wrong with it. It's all good stuff. We want, to, we want to encourage devotion. But I would like to, I would like to promote the idea that I didn't make up, that we consider the church building as a sermon in stone, as a particular sermon in stone. It's not the same sermon in every church. We can have different churches with different sermons with the iconographical program. What do I mean? Let's go to Assisi. At Assisi, we have a very complex program. We don't have, we do have a crucifix there, we do have Our Lady there, we do have St. Joseph, but not in the American formula situation. And we have images of, at our level, the low level, we have the images of St. Francis, his life, and above we have images of the saints and the Old Testament, and on the right side we have the images of the life of Christ. You can see that here, if you look at the on the right side, top from, right side, second arch from the top, you see at the bottom, the death of St. Francis. Can you see that? And right above it, what do you put? He's an altar Christus. He's an altar Christus. So right above, do you see that or not? Death of St. Francis, right above that, crucifixion. St. Francis dies in remembrance, in representation of Christ's death for us. the verification of stigmata above is Christ carrying the cross. So this great basilica that honors the, um, the povero, the sacred uh, uh, saint, is particular to the life of St. Francis while bringing in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Savior. Actually, uh, we wouldn't like it in the 19th 70s and 80s because there's multiple crucifixions in the same church. More than one, it's not allowed. Um, we had the opportunity to work on a Franciscan church and we took that idea of Assisi um, and we thought we would make it explicit for a particular church, a particular chapel at a college. And so we have side shrines on the left, 
which is the life of St. Francis, and on the right, we paired them with the life of Christ, with these shrines over here. So rebuild my church, the baptism of Christ. Francis gives a cloak to a beggar calling of the 12 apostles, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I didn't make up that idea. There's some great examples of this. We saw it at Assisi. Here's the Redentori again in uh, Venice. And the Redentori is the church in honor of Christ the Redeemer who's healed us, who saves us. And so all the side chapels, the six side chapels, are all part of the same story. And if you enter on the right and go to the chapels, you go to the birth of Christ, then the baptism of Christ, then the scourging, and then the high altar is the crucifixion. And the carrying of the cross is the image on the altar itself, is the, is the carrying of the cross. And then as we go, keep going counterclockwise, we go to the deposition, the resurrection, and the ascension. So the church is a theological expression, is a catechism, is a sermon in stone about Christ the Redeemer. All of these side altars, side chapels. And then one of my favorites in Rome is, does anybody know this church? I lived there for seven years. Chiesa Nuova, Santa Maria in Vallicelliana. And this was built by the great, started by the great Saint Philip Neri. And in this um, 12 side chapels, including the transept, it's the life of Mary, almost like a, um, an abridged version of the mystery of the rosary. From the presentation of the Virgin to the Annunciation, Visitation, Nativity, Epiphany, Presentation, Crucifixion, Deposition, Ascension, Pentecost, Assumption, including these great paintings, uh, including this one of the Deposition on the right by Caravaggio. So this idea about thinking about the building as a particular sermon and having a particular identity rather than following the wonderful American formula, which will get you a B minus on the class, on the exam. So some of the things that we've tried to do is, of course, at Guadalupe, we have an image of the sacred image of the tilma, but we do it in mosaic because the sacred image is miraculous. So we imitate it in a different material because there's one of them, as it were. And you can see the inscription above. It's something about Benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesu Christ Sancta Maria. I'm not sure where that's from, but some kind of important uh, prayer. And then um, on the left transept, we talked about before the life of the Virgin in stained glass windows at the top. Then we have the names of Mary in Latin. Do you know where that's from? The famous names of Mary in Latin? The litany of, litany of Loretto. This one was Mater Purissima, Mother most, most Pure. And so we had the Madonna above. We had the Mother Most Pure. And then below we had the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So trying to connect even the theology, like at Assisi, connect it vertically as well. And then my favorite part is we didn't know what to do in the dome. We wanted to have something important there. It's the Dome of Heaven. We like blue stars, blue sky and gold stars at Notre Dame. And, but what should it be? And Cardinal Burke was very fascinated by this and decided to really promote the idea right in front of the altar that that would be the image of the heavens on December 12th. 1531. What happened on that day? That's when the actual image is, is, is 
revealed to the, it, it comes to uh, Juan Diego and then it's revealed to the Franciscan Archbishop. So, five principles, verticality, directionality, geometric order, tectonics, iconography. Uh, I think they're all important. Uh, they're not a formula, but they're important to our recovery of sacred architecture. And if you want to design or build a good church, you need to do all five of them. What if you want to do a great church? You need to do all five of them excellently. Thank you very much. We, we have time for just a question uh, or two, if anyone has a question. Okay. Hi, I'm uh, Paul. I'm a law student here. Um, I come from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and uh, I feel that in a lot of ways these principles would apply to Byzantine architecture too, but obviously all your examples were of you know, Western Christian architecture. Do you feel that these principles cross East and West? Yes, of course. And um, as Francis... Sorry, as Thomas Francis Xavier Noble, uh, who used to teach her, used to say, really the architecture of East and West was much more the same up through a thousand. We share the same basis. And then we developed. I like development personally. I think development is good um, or can be good. So we developed in different emphases. So yes, I think it's uh, in the last decades, the Catholics have been learning a lot from the, from the East. And I think we should learn more, especially about the ideas of verticality with those things that you like to put over the churches, I forget what they're called, the dome, and um, the centralized type, which I'm a fan of, um, but a lot of our churches are, are, are big, so it's hard to do that. And then the re, uh, reappreciation or re-use um, re, uh, of iconography that we're relearning, and no question in the best Byzantine churches, or the most sophisticated ones, there's a very complex iconographic story about what goes on in those churches. churches. And uh, it's not just um, a formula, and it's not simple. So, thank you. I'm an architecture student here. I just had a question with um, a lot of your historical examples. I feel like there's a, a heavier emphasis on the iconography, like on the inside, sculpture and painting. Um, and in more modern examples, or is the, is the limited amount of that based on just simply like financial constraints or is there also like a crisis of skilled artisans that are capable of creating those? And if so, which particular discipline uh, needs the most help? Yeah, well, we all do, we all need a lot of help. But um, we mainly need a lot of money, and we need talented artists. But uh, you're right, the emphasis was on the interior, uh, but I do believe these principles all apply to the exterior. Uh, interestingly, you know about the exteriors of early Christian churches. Very complex, right? No. So, so, so that's something that's been wonderfully developed, that exteriors can, can speak more um, frankly, more uh, brilliantly, like a Gothic cathedral or like a uh, Baroque uh, uh, chapel. And so the exteriors are just as important. 
Um, it's expensive to do it on the exterior. So I find that we, we, as myself, we tend to spend, we, there's certain things I don't believe you should go ch cheap on or that you should do right. And one of them is the women's bathrooms. No. <laughs> one of them is the, uh, we have to focus on the front of the building and the sanctuary. You gotta put your money there. And then if you can, you put some money other places. But you've got, those have to be a knockout. And so that's, that's the way I start. And um, you're right though, you caught me. And Duncan, I know your reputation. You don't advertise anything as going cheap for it. Yeah. Professor, can you just explain the, the concept of the sanctuary with the, you talked about the American tradition, but the, the tabernacle at the center of the sanctuary and maybe, I mean, I, I, at least from my perspective in the 20th century, you kind of see some churches, especially in America, that differ with that. And is there some sort of tradition that does call for the tabernacle in the center of the sanctuary? Okay, good. What about the tabernacle? Okay, so uh, that would be an easy answer if I had an hour. Okay, um, very, I'm very interested in that, but uh, there was a strong um, desire to remove the tabernacle. Okay, in America, New World, We've been around for a couple hundred years. During that couple hundred years, the tradition in Europe and the rest of Christendom was to have tabernacles, the Blessed Sacrament, on the altar, focused in churches, in new churches, some renovated churches. There's a guy named St. Charles Borromeo who promoted that. He didn't start it, but he promoted it. St. Francis actually was big on that. And, um, but basically, in the 20th century, um, appropriately, modernist architects and liturgists saw the distraction of the tabernacle. That this was distracting people from the bare minimum. I'm being ironic here. Um, and wanting to emphasize liturgical action and, and emphasize the people. Emphasize the imminence, us, over God. So they saw it as a distraction, which it is. It's a good distraction. And they sought to remove it. Interestingly, with John Paul II's promotion of adoration, of Eucharistic emphasis, uh, I think that's, that's changed as far as new churches go and many renovated churches, that that generation who felt strongly against the tabernacle has gone away, uh, or is dissipating, let's put it that way. And so, uh, but it was our tradition in America all the time, uh, Europe for four to 500 years, and it's a developed tradition but it's a developed theology of the Blessed Sacrament. And in the East, of course, they don't make such a big deal about it, but they too have a tabernacle on the altar. Another question? Oh, there's a chapter in my book that's really good on this. Hi, I'm Noel. I'm a junior here. And I was just wondering, I don't know if you're familiar with the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels in Los Angeles. Um, and it's interesting mix of modern and some random uh, Renaissance Baroque pieces. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that type of style. Well, on that style, I mean, it's interesting. It's um, by a very famous architect, Rafa Moneo, who had not done religious architecture before but had done some big buildings of museums and airports and you know, some, some nice stuff. And this really was not his thing to do, but the uh, Cardinal Archbishop of, of Los Angeles chose him out of other famous architects to do the project. And so the story that I like that explains a lot, I think it explains a lot about the building. Again, you have an architect that doesn't really have a background in church architecture, 
but knows and loves Le Corbusier, as all good architects should. Um, so he's doing some of that. It's a little bit of Le Corbusier. But then the great telling moment for me was when they went to, where's that place that you walk a long way to go to Spain? Santiago de Compostela. They went to Santiago de Compostela, the archbishop and uh, the architect Moneo, and they walked in and there was a liturgy going on, as only the Spanish can do, and there were also people coming and going. It's a big basilica, remember? It's a pilgrimage place, like this place on football weekends. And there were people praying at side altars and there's a liturgy going on and there are pilgrims coming and going and the cardinal said, that's what I don't want. All that mess that says it all about Los Angeles, in my view. So he, he complied. No mess. Duncan, a few of us are gonna go on a tour of the campus. Could you just say a few words maybe about the campus architecture and what folks might keep an eye out for? Good, good, I'm glad you're doing that. It's a nice completion, or not completion, but a nice next step in what you're doing. Um, I think the interesting thing about our campus is, though we've tried to make it very consistent in the last 20 years, it has, has a lot of variety. And of course, you know where it starts, where we started the campus, that's interesting. Where did it start, and then how did it grow? And uh, it's a French order who wants to create order in the landscape, in the middle of nowhere. And it's really kind of a seminary idea, away from town, on its own, a light on a hill, city on a hill, okay? And so there, is a, there are prominent buildings, and they get emphasized, and then other buildings defer to them, and then some buildings are ugly and functional, and then um, we, keep, uh, we keep doing nice things. And the um, thing I didn't talk about at all in the talk, but it's very important, is one of the great things that the Americas have given to architecture that Europe kind of started, but we really de have developed is the American campus. And what about the American campus that's so great? Football stadiums? No. What's so great about American campuses? The quadrangle. That's what American, the American tradition of campus architecture, campus means field, is the quadrangle. So the thing that we're good at in America have been quadrangles in American campuses. And that's something that, notwithstanding those two small colleges in England, we do better than most of Europe. Is that okay? Duncan's book, uh, he brought uh, copies of his book, uh, The Church Building as a Sacred Place. I have a copy myself, I invite you to take a look at it. Uh, Notre Dame's architecture program is one of the best parts of Notre Dame, very proud of it, and its leadership, especially Duncan. So please join me in thanking Duncan Strike. Thanks, Philip.